0: the Go podcast is brought to you by The Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.thesanctuarychurch.com. I'm in the middle of this series about the church and why the church matters. And uh, this morning, I want to focus on the fact that our lives, um, they reflect the things that we focus on, the stuff that we are committed to, the stuff that we're devoted to. In Acts chapter 4, check this out, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says that all the believers were united in heart and mind. You see that? All the believers united in heart and mind. Now, is this verse describing a small group of Christians living in a commune out in the country? No, no. Is this verse about some monks who are cloistered in a cave or some nuns who are secluded in a monastery? No, no, no. Is this verse uh, recounting two of the radicalized disciples who went out and did radical things for God? No. Uh, Read it again. This verse is describing all believers being united in heart and mind. It is an amazing concept. This morning, uh, as I get into Sacred Roots, I want to get back to the fact that God is getting to the heart of what we're about, and it's we're needing to shift ourselves from dabbling with church to devoting ourselves to his kingdom. So that's where I'm heading this morning. I hope you've got your app open. This morning, I want to unpack how if we are honest, if we're really honest with what we're talking about here, we admit that most of our discipleship looks like it's actually happening on the wrong side of the cross. Wrong side of the cross. What the heck does that mean, right? What do I mean by the wrong side of the cross? Well, think, think about these, these things. Personal ambition envy, strife, rivalry, selfishness. These are all words and phrases that could very easily describe the disciples prior to the cross of Jesus. If you think about the disciples and the way they acted and the way people were acting before the cross, that that describes them pretty well. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, something happened. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, these same disciples were transformed. There's something radical that took place. I mentioned how uh, last week on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to the church. That happened in Acts chapter 2, and we celebrate it 49 days after Resurrection Sunday. We do that every year. If you didn't get to hear that from last week, I encourage you on the website, go on to Facebook, get it off of the app, listen to what I talked about last week about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming to us, but I encourage you to get that listen to to what, what I was talking about last week. But I want you to hear this morning what happens and a good description of what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. Check this out. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, look at this. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. All the believers, right? This is prior to them, uh, prior to them having uh, all being united in heart and mind. This is the beginning of that happening, right? These Acts chapter two, all the believers devoted themselves, to the apostles' teaching. Listen to this list. Watch how this list gets carried out here. All the believers devoted themselves. Here it comes. Number one, to the apostles' teaching. Number two, fellowship. Three, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. Four, prayer. A deep sense of awe comes over them all. And number five, the apostles are performing many miraculous signs and wonders. Should I make that five and six? I don't know. And all the believers, here comes seven, met together in one place. Eight, shared everything they had. Nine, they sold their property and possessions. And 10, they shared the money with those in need. 11, they worshiped together in the temple each day. 12, in homes for the Lord's Supper. 13, shared meals with great joy and generosity. All the while, 14, praising God. 15, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. 16, each day the Lord adds to their fellowship those who are being saved. Beloved, you have got to hear this. These were the previously fickle, the consistently inconsistent followers of Jesus when the Holy Spirit comes on them. That's what I want you to hear. I want you to see. I want you to see it for yourselves. This is what it looks like when people live on the empowered, the Spirit-empowered side of the cross. This is what happens. And as Christians, we are all called to live On the spirit empowered side of the cross. This is where we turn away from building up our own kingdoms to a self denying, a countercultural community of discipleship and mission. And did you note, by the way, I, I tried to highlight it for us when I was reading it, that it's the fourth word in. Do you see it there? All the believers, what? Devoted. That's the key. They were devoted to it, and this is what it looks like when you're devoted to something. We all know people who are devoted to things. Maybe they're devoted to cars. Maybe they're devoted to sports. Maybe they're devoted to vacationing or toys or you know weekend warrior kind of things. I I don't know, but but this is what it looks like when Christians are devoted. It begins this passage, and I think it modifies everything else. From that point forward, that word just modifies everything else that we see in the text. I think it's what propels this incredible and extensive list of what it means to be a disciple. These are the disciples. They're following Jesus. Would you fill this in? It's in your blanks this morning. The intensity and intentionality of the early church Set them apart from so much of the religious activity of the day. See, it wasn't about religion. And I talked about that in my last series, right? <laughs> Spiritual, but not religious, right? We talked about that. It wasn't about religion. There was this intensity, this intentionality that set the early, part, the early church apart. Faith wasn't meant to be, and listen to me, it was not meant to be an addition to life. It was meant to reframe life entirely. And that's what happened with these disciples. These disciples were completely changed. I keep using this word, transformed. Well, in his excellent book, it's called Multiplying Missional Leaders, Mike Breen uh, wrote this incredible book, and he describes the nature of devotion in terms of how we steward the capital. He calls it the capital of our lives, the things that we are able to spend, the resources, the wealth that's in our lives. And he talks about how we spend our capital, how we literally spend our lives. He identifies several areas of capital. He calls them physical, uh, intellectual, spiritual, financial, right? He gets into relational capital. This is all stuff that we have to spend. How am I going to spend my relationships? How am I going to do that? How am I going to spend my intellect? What am I going to invest in with my intellect, right? Well, a cultural worldview shaped by desire. This is what I want. I want what I want commonly spends those resources in the following priority. Look at this list. This is the way these resources are spent. Check this out. Here it is, financials at the top, then physical, then intellectual, then relational, then spiritual. You you see this list? This This is the cultural worldview in his book, again, Mike Breen, he talks about how we give our entire lives just to get ahead financially. It's an amazing thing. See, we work, then we spend, then we accumulate debt, and then we do it all over and over and over and over again. It's like, wow, what's wrong here, right? We obsess over our bodies, about how we present ourselves physically. We devote ourselves to our clothes, our appearance, our health in almost religious ways. Talk about being devoted. We get an education so we can put letters after our names, certifications, accreditations. We study, we debate, we form our opinions, and we make sure that everybody knows what our opinions are, whether they ask for them or not. We're going to make sure. Would you fill this in? we often fall into the trap of believing that just because we think something is true, we've actually done something about it. You ever done that? I was thinking about it, so I must have done something about it. You ever done that where where you're thinking about stuff, but you didn't actually do it? I I do it with my bride all the time. I'm like, didn't I tell you about that? No, that must have been something you were thinking about. I'm like, (laughs) We find ourselves criticizing how, the wealthy spend their money, and yet we may or may not realize that our spending habits reflect the same sorts of patterns, just with fewer zeros attached to the price tag. See, the real problem is that after we've devoted ourselves to all these pursuits, starting with finances, we're giving the leftovers to our family and to our friends. Whatever's left over, well, this is what, this is what I have now, I've spent all this on me, but this is what I have to give to you. And if there's anything left after that, we might care for our souls in this little tiny time compartment called devotional life. This is my devotional life. I read my, my verse of the day. One verse? You've got to be starving spiritually because spirituality gets whatever's left. First, I mean, I got priorities. I got to get to work. I got to pay for the house, the car, et cetera, et cetera, right? Jesus describes this incredible struggle that we all are a part of in what has been called the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to encourage you. It's in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. There's three, three chapters. And would you do me a favor? Listen, no. Rewind. Rewind. Do yourself a favor. Would you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 this week? Maybe you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 three times, all three chapters. Maybe you read Matthew 5 on Monday, Matthew 6 on Tuesday, Matthew 7 on Wednesday, and then Matthew 5, 6, and 7 so you read at least twice this week. But would you get through Jesus sermon on the mount? It's one of the practices I have is I write it out word for word. at least once a year, I write out the entire Sermon on the Mount because I got to get it into my brain, and the best way to get it into my brain is getting it out of my fingers. And so by hand, I write out the words of Jesus, and I go, wow, he said all this stuff, man. I want to be blessed. Well, if you want to be blessed, then you have to do these things. I go, oh, yeah. Growth Journal on it. Read it this week. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus refers to all this capital, that Mike Breen was talking about, he refers to it as the stuff that unbelievers are running after. Check this out. In Matthew chapter six, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 31 and 32, check out what he says. He says, don't worry about that stuff. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? That's the stuff. He says, those things, that stuff is what dominates the thoughts, catch this, of unbelievers. Not you, right? No, that doesn't dominate my thoughts. What are we gonna eat? I, can't, I cannot tell you how often I heard that question in my parenting. What's for dinner? And I would tell my kids, you know, that stuff dominates the thought. No, I didn't do that. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. But, but listen to what he says. That stuff dominates the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows what your needs are. Oh, unfortunately today, believers and unbelievers seem to be running after the same stuff. It seems like we're into the same things. Jesus says, well, that's, that's what unbelievers do. But you believers, you who believe in me, you do something different, right? And, and I, unfortunately, it's, I'm just not seeing it. According to research, there's not a lot of difference between churched people and unchurched people. We're pursuing the same things. We're after the same things. It seems like everybody describes themselves as totally committed to getting ahead in life. Listen to the phrase, I am totally committed to getting ahead in life. I believe Christians are saying that and non-Christians are saying the same thing. We're all stressed out In serious financial debts. We gotta learn how to pay for this money. You gotta get the money to raise this. You gotta do work some overtime. We're all lonely. We're all anxious about tomorrow. We're all competing and comparing for attention and applause. Again, doesn't that sound like the wrong side of the cross? That's not our way. As Christians, that is not our way. As Christians, we are all called to seek first. The kingdom of God. In fact, check out the next verses. Right after 31, 32, check out 33 and 34. Matthew chapter 6, look what he says Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And then God will give you everything that you need. So you don't need to worry about tomorrow what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we're going to go, right? Don't worry about that stuff because tomorrow's got its own worries. We're in debt to tomorrow. We're borrowing the stress from tomorrow. That's called debt, folks. When we borrow something not from today, we borrow it from the future, right? I'll pay it off in the future. We're borrowing stress from the future. Today, Jesus said, is enough for today. Worry is linked to the stuff that dominates our thoughts. So then what do we got to do? The key to not a cultural worldview, but a biblical worldview. How do I get a biblical worldview? It's called, and you hear me use this word all the time, alignment. We must realign what Mike Breen calls all those, those capital resources. We have to reverse the order in which we spend our capital. Check this list out. If we reverse it, Look at this list. If we put on the top, the very thing that we typically put on the bottom, what if we started with spiritual, then moved to relationships? Then I start worrying about my physical, then my intellectual. And lastly, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to wear, and where I'm going to stay. Spiritual at the top, financial at the bottom. What our culture puts at the bottom, Jesus put at the absolute top. He says, seek the kingdom of God first. It's a complete reversal. And I see this reversal happening. I see Jesus talking about here, and I'm like, "Oh, wow. How, how did I get this wrong? A life of devotion. Would you fill this in? Fill in this blank for me. A life of devotion would mean that we spend and prioritize. Spend and prioritize our lives in a countercultural way. See, I, I brought it for us this morning, a cultural worldview and a biblical worldview. Those are two different things. This is what I mean by having a biblical worldview. We're spending and prioritizing our lives in a countercultural way. Now, last week, I brought to you this concept of the primal church. I mean, it, this, is, this is it in its basic form. This is what the church is meant to be. I introduced that concept last weekend, and it's a call to a radical devotion to the pursuit of God. This is, again, I brought this word up. They were devoted, walking with God, devoting our time with Him, delighting in His presence. Can you imagine? What if we created time to steward our emotional capital, our emotional energy to bear one another's burdens? we got to use our strength and energy to serve one another in practical ways. Hey, I can help you come clean the house. I can help you move. I want to celebrate with you. Can I help you fix that? I want to work alongside you. we got to make sure that we get enough rest so we can be fully present in the lives of those around us. we got to eat and exercise and steward our bodies as holy temples where God's presence dwells. I'm telling you, the Lord is really challenging me on that last one. And of course, sharpening our intellect is important, but it cannot be done to the detriment or the sacrifice of relationships. There's nothing wrong with getting smarter, learning to not work harder, right? But at what cost? And what's really missing these days, I think, is seeking ways to steward what we do have. There is, there is things in our lives, and I'm called to steward these things. This isn't just a pipe dream. It's not something, oh yeah, that would, that would be great if that could ever happen. I think it can. I've actually seen it. You've probably seen glimpses of it too. Would you fill this in? We've got to start regularly practicing generosity. And Pastor Jonathan brought it up, man. Oh, generosity. By not letting the desire for more choke out the work of simplicity. God wants to work a simplicity into our lives. And I want you to see that. The the best way to get simplicity into our lives is working generosity. This is something we can do because God empowers us. He enables us to do it. I want you to see that that if we could be a generous people, and we are, again, Pastor Jonathan brought it up, generous month after month. I, I watch our congregation bless our community, not just our congregation. Yes, we give here, right? The Bible gives us an instruction. I want you to give 10% to the storehouse. And then in praise and in worship, you give those additional things to the high school and to the missions organization. and this. I've watched our congregation in its generosity. But how about we become people who are passionately committed to being disciples of Jesus in the context of community? What if we were generous with one another? I know we've got jobs, we've got relationships, we've got pets to care for, homes and cars to maintain, children that we've got to nurture. And, and that description, I believe, describes a lot of us here in Santa Clarita. But one quality could completely set us apart. Are you ready? Being available. It just seems like they're available. Yes, I have these things. I have things I have to take care of. I have responsibilities. But, man, I want, I want to be someone who's known as available. Man, I needed prayer. I know where to go. I can go to them because they're always available for prayer. No matter what's on our table, no matter what's on our plate, what if we're available to serve, to give, to love, in the midst of everybody else feeling completely overwhelmed? Us? No, we're available. What if we told our boss what our priorities are? Can you imagine? This is how many hours I'm willing to work. What? What? What if we decided to only give so much to our job so that we could live out what's important to us in the other areas of our lives? I know, I, I hear it right now. That's committing career suicide. You gotta be kidding, you can't just do that. You'll never rise above middle management. Maybe we're not supposed to. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not supposed to rise above middle management within that company because I'm supposed to be investing in the kingdom over here. I believe God has called people to those positions in those places, so don't get me wrong. But maybe the 60- and 70-hour work weeks, so that, listen to me now, so that we can take the two-week vacation, so that I have to decompress for four days, the first four days of the vacation. You you know what I'm talking about, right? You get on vacation, it's like, I'm so stressed out, I can't even relax while I'm on vacation. Am I talking to you? Are you hearing me, right? Yeah. You you take that vacation. You got I got one week. We got to jam it all in that one week. And the first 4 days I'm just simply decompressing because I am wound so tight. No, that's not God's plan for us. In fact, I would tell you God's plan says we get 52 days off a year. 14 days most of us settle for 14 days, 2 weeks. God says I want you to take a day off every week. I want you to relax. I want you to enjoy my presence. You and I, we're going to celebrate something called the Sabbath. That's Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through. God says, I want, I want you to relax with me. And, and I'm telling, listen to me now. If we regularly practice the Sabbath, we would need the first four days to decompress so then we only get three extra days and my vacation only ended up to be three days. Oh, that, That's just not a way to plan. A guy named Noam Chomsky He's an academic philosopher. He is sometimes called the father of modern linguistics. He said this, the vision of modern life is an individual alone and lonely in a room looking at a screen. Do you ever feel like this? Is, Is that you? Maybe it's TV, could be your computer. I don't know what that screen is for you. But you ever feel like it's me and a screen? It's like you stare at the screen all day long. Again, all kinds of screens in in our lives. Think about that. And we all know we're created for more. We've even got this new thing called Zoom fatigue. It's been created just in the last many months. Or how many of you have been this person? Oh, man, really? I remember the day when we used to have conversations with people in a room. The more time that people are spending online, the less time they're devoting to cultivating deeper real-life relationships. Beloved, this isn't just screen-agers anymore. We we used to have a name for it, screen-agers. I walk in, I go to the doctor, and now this is what it looks like. Oh, my gosh. Jesus longs for us to live remarkably different lives than the world around us by devoting ourselves to different things. Again, God's heart is that we all might shift from dabbling in church to devoting ourselves to his kingdom, to pursuing the kingdom above all else. Those are the words Jesus used. And when we do this in such a way, I'll I'll tell you what, the world gets jarred. It's like, whoa. That's totally different. They're jarred out of their idolatry by the intensity of the passion of the people of God for one another. Listen to what I'm saying. The intensity of the passion of the people of God for one another. Look at the way it's told to us in John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus talking here, he says it really clearly. I want you to get this. This is kingdom devotion. Your love for one another is what's going to prove to the world that you're my disciples. That says, everybody's going to know it. All people will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And in a world of constant passive distractions, you know what passionate devotion does? It gets people's attention. Whoa. They're not like us. They're devoted to something other than what I'm devoted to. How do we move from dabbling in our faith to a, from, from that devotional life to a life of devotion? That, that's the way I phrase it. It's not just a time slot in my life. It is my life. There's a time where I'm doing something concentrated, but it's my life, a life of devotion. I think it happens when we combine our faith and our culture our faith, let me say this better, into our culture. Again, Pastor Jonathan nailed it. He said, we've been running directly into the darkness. Beloved, I have seen you do it. As we have gone, again, running into the darkness, there's this dark place in our culture. Kids aren't being fed. Let's bring our light in there. Here's this dark place in our culture, human trafficking. Let's run into that darkness with our light. And so we run in with finances, we run in with time, we devote ourselves, we give volunteer time, right? I, I've seen us do it. Now, I think that when we combine those two things, they shake the imagination of the world. When we bring our faith into the culture of the world, goes, wait, what is that? How does faith and culture go together? I thought I thought we're supposed to be separate. Can faith exist without culture or culture exist without faith? Faith and culture are not simply questions. Uh, Listen to me. I believe it's more about answers. We're bringing answers into our culture. In the broadest sense of those words, faith and culture are totally connected because culture is always an expression. It is affected by our faith. Faith informs it. I said it last week. If a culture is active by a belief in the triune splendor, here's what I said, the triune splendor of the good, the true, and the beautiful, it's gonna shine with goodness, with truth, and with beauty. When faith comes into the culture, the culture is vibrant. But when faith pulls back from the culture, the culture begins to wither. Fill this in. Faith, faith is what empowers the culture to cultivate healthy growth and good things. We gotta live out our faith in the midst of our culture. That's what empowers the culture to do it. When our culture rejects and denies the foundations of faith, listen to me, when they reject faith, it manifests itself, viciousness, falsehood, lies, ugliness, just take a look around. We're watching it happen. When faith pulls out of the culture, the the culture absolutely disintegrates. We took God out of schools. We took him out of the courthouse. We took him out of the public square. And now nothing is being cultivated. Everything is being destroyed because faith pulled back. A faithless culture pulls the tree of what is good, true, and beautiful, pulls it right out of the ground by the roots. (laughs) We don't need this anymore. It tosses any good fruit aside, leaving behind a wasteland of deconstruction and despair. But but you and I of faith, the people of faith, we come into that fruitless wasteland that's capable of nothing but a but a a sneer. Oh yeah. That's that's the sterile ground of a godless people. The cynics just look and, yeah. Beloved, the choice that we have before us is between choosing, listen to me, faith and culture coming together. We bring our faith into the culture. That comes together. Or the absence of faith in our culture and the consequence of that is the absence of a fruitful and thriving culture. Our culture can't thrive without us. Jesus said it this way, I've called you to be salt, to bring the flavor. I've called you to be light, to show people how to walk. That's what we're called to do. There is no middle path. There isn't a middle path. As people of faith, we have to be in the culture. John writes about it all over the place. I have put it in your app this morning. I hope that you'll look up these scriptures. John writes about being in the world, but not of the world. Oh, so many great scriptures. I've included it in your app this morning. I hope you'll look those up. Even Growth Journal, some of those this week. How God calls us. John records it over and over again. Yeah, you got to be in the world, just not of the world. It's a fine line. And so easy to fall over. But that happens when when I'm connected with other people. I don't fall over. I I don't get trapped. Now, all of this illustrates that if we want our culture to be renewed, it must be infused with our faith. Our faith has to be in that culture. In fact, to put it more correctly, and I believe accurately, every renewal of faith will always bring with it a renewal of culture. That's called revival, beloved. When our culture is infused with our faith, revival happens. Cultural revival happens. Spiritual revival is happening over here in the church. But cultural revival, the people are brought to life and they go, oh, I feel better about it. Listen, they don't even have Jesus yet. We just keep bringing our faith into the culture. Fill this in. The church must engage in the harvest. That's our purpose, beloved. This is our purpose. We were set apart for a purpose, to remain set apart for a purpose. And that is the harvest. Without this compelling purpose, without this purpose, Christians aren't going to be able to sustain the life of faith within their culture because they're going to be hungry. Their own spirits are going to be starving. And I think think that's the unseen nourishment that Jesus talked about in John 4.32. He says, "I, I have food you don't know about and listen to what he said, doing the will of my father, which is what? Bringing the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Beloved, some of Jesus' last words to his disciples, they're often referred to as the the great commission. Jesus tells his disciples this. In Matthew chapter 28, watch this, verses 19 and 20, he says this, I need you to go. He's had this whole speech here. He says, therefore, having said all that, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I need you to do this. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I've given you. And be sure of this. I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. This is one of those commandments that comes to us in these verses, and it's an imperative. I need you to make disciples. Okay, make disciples. Right, 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 right. The other three words, the going, the baptizing, the teaching, those are just action steps. But what I need you to do is I need you to make disciples. These key words all brought together, it's about what I talked about earlier, intention, initiative, intentionality. It's like I'm doing this on purpose. So then what is the difference between a believer, a follower... And a disciple. Those, those words are just interchangeable, right? A believer, a follower, and a disciple. Those are all kind of the same thing. When you, when you say that, isn't, isn't a believer just a follower? Isn't a follower just a disciple? I think in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, and I'm gonna put this reference up for you, I, I want you to write this down, put it in your notes. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, I want you to read about what it means, what the cost of following Jesus is all about. And again, there's more scripture for you. I I encourage you to growth journal on this this week. Now, today, many would say that they believe in Jesus. I hear people say that, and I think that's where it all starts. It's an academic and intellectual decision in considering Jesus. Yeah, 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 I, I believe Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But as we look at the accounts of the life of Jesus, he had a lot of followers, a lot of followers, but only a few of them were called disciples. And in the day which Jesus was calling his disciples to make disciples, catch that? A disciple was a follower of a rabbi or a teacher, but there was more than, more to it than that. I'm going to get to it. See, I Jesus saying, Hey, I, you guys are my disciples. I'm calling you to go make disciples. Ultimately, of me. You're my disciples. Go make more disciples of you who are following me. Catch that? But the difference between the follower and the disciple is this word intent. What's the intent? The intent is that the disciple becomes like the rabbi or the teacher, or again, in this case, Jesus. So yes, a disciple is a follower, but listen, a follower is not always a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who follows with the intent to be more like him. So with that in mind, am I a disciple? Are you a disciple? Or are we just followers? And in the original Greek, the word is mathites. It's this Greek word. It means pupil or apprentice. And you hear that and you think student, learner, trainer, trainee, right? How about this one? An intern. Oh, that person is learning all the ropes of what's happening so that they know how to do it. See, that's what it means to be a disciple. Fill this in. The idea is someone who's not only learning, but it's emulating another person. Now, I use that word emulate, so I want you to get that in there, emulating another person. This goes beyond imitating, okay? A lot of people can imitate. This is way beyond that. Have you ever, you ever I, think it, I think it moves into like the, the psycho realm. It's like that person like dresses like that person, talks like that person, acts like, today we would go, that person's kooky. But that's what disciple means, I mistake it, listen to me, I mistaken that person for that person. They are so alike. And now I'm asking the question again, am I a disciple? Ask the question, am I a disciple? Do people mistaken me for Jesus? The way I treat people? The way I talk to people? The way I serve people? The things that I'm pursuing? The things that I'm devoted to? Would they go, totally Jesus? Jesus, man. And I, I say it this way, more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. More like Jesus tomorrow than I am today. That's what it means to be a disciple. When Jesus went around and preached the good news of the kingdom of God, there were thousands of people who enjoyed his teaching. Those were the followers. They followed, they acknowledged that he spoke the truth. But are we followers of Jesus or are we disciples of Jesus? It's an important question we've got to answer. A follower listens to great teaching. Disciples put the teaching into practice. A follower likes to sit and watch the miraculous. A disciple prays for it. A follower is in it for the benefits. A disciple follows Even when it hurts, when it's inconvenient, as disciples, we are called not only to follow Jesus, but we are devoted to becoming like him. Jesus had many lovers of his heaven, but very few bearers of his cross. Beloved, I'm all into that. I'm into the heaven thing, but the whole cross thing, can we like put that on a shelf somewhere? Look what he said in Luke 14, verse 27. If you don't carry your own cross and follow me, here it comes. I'm I'm bringing these words. You can't be my disciple. So the cross is part of the discipleship. Bearing a cross doesn't mean, it's not talking about just having hard times. It means dying with Christ. It means dying to the old attitudes, the envy, the strife, the fear, the jealousy, the anger, the selfishness, the pride. I'm I'm saying no to all of that. Discipleship is turning to Jesus, following for the newness of life, yes, but it's to being devoted all the way to and through the cross. When we make disciples, we're asking people to come and die to their old destructive ways, and to live for to be devoted to Jesus who loved them and gave himself up for them beloved i'm calling you to be a disciple now there's two calls here first you're all, you're already a follower <laughs> you're a believer i believe in jesus again i got the heaven thing and i'm a follower i read the words so i don't know that i've got the application down so i want to talk to you as christians Hey, time to giddy up. Now's the time. We're calling it forward. But I would also like to talk to some of you who aren't even followers of Jesus. Are are you here and you're in the stream with us this morning and you don't have a relationship with God today? Oh, listen to me. And And I call you by the name God calls you. You ready? Beloved. You were created for a relationship with God. That he he made me to have relationship with him, but I've got this free will busy inside of me wanting what I want, and I and I got a lot of wants, I got a lot of desires, and so he goes, okay, I'm gonna let you choose. That's probably one of the hardest things I've done as a parent, is to watch my children choose things I wouldn't choose, and God watches it all day long. He's watched me do it, but then God says this. I love you so much, I'm going to make sure that there's a way for you to choose, something that can empower you in that choice, and it's Jesus. And he sends Jesus to you, and he says, I've made a way for you to come back to God. Yeah, but you don't know all the crazy stuff I've been into. You should see the wake of destruction behind me. Oh, Jesus takes care of that too. Wait, what? It's called forgiveness. Get down. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, which gives you a relationship with God, Would you accept Jesus today? That is what this is about, to become a disciple, to be free, to be liberated. Oh, sure, we celebrated independence yesterday. Today I'm asking you to celebrate dependence. I need Jesus. I'm a mess. Without him. If you are here and you're listening to me this morning, and you are a Christian, you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, 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 I'm, I'm there, but I don't think I'm a disciple. I'm calling you forward. Come on. One step forward. Come on. But if you are here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to pray with you. I'm calling all those Christians forward, but I'm calling you as not a follower to be a follower, and not just a follower, but to be a disciple the way he calls it out, the way Jesus calls it out, to be more like me, not me, me. So let me pray for you. God, right now, for those who are out, who are listening to my voice right now, they're saying, that's what I want. That's the thing that I need to be truly free. I pray in Jesus' name for those who are listening to my voice that you would come in and rescue them, free them, that they might be free indeed. They might be, have not just life, but life abundantly. Jesus, that's what you promised. And so if that's you, I'm, I'm praying these things for you. But you just say it your own way. Jesus, come into my life today. Change me, transform me. I want to be more like you. No one's ever had a problem with Jesus. They only have a problem with Jesus' followers.